You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight's going to be a great episode. I've got a great guest and a great topic, which I've been looking to cover for some time, and it's going to be toads and specifically bumblebee toads, which I know a lot of listeners have uh, reached out and suggested. And I have a great guest. I have Laura Abraham, and she works with the species. And uh, we're going to get into how she started out, how she acquired her foundation stock, and some of her methods to successfully breed them, because they're not necessarily that easy to breed in captivity. So we're going to get into all that. And before that, though, I want to just thank everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, uh, especially Don. I saw that review a couple of weeks back, and I wanted to give you a shout-out. Thank you for the nice review and for the nice comments. Five-star review on Apple Podcasts is the easiest way to support the show. And uh, if you're looking for another way to support the show, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. We have tiers as low as $3 a month. And for the $5 tier, you get your name shouted out at the beginning of an upcoming episode, which is pretty cool. So if you want to uh, help the show out with the the finances, obviously there are costs associated with maintaining the hosting site and whatnot. Become a patron. It's a great way to support the show. So other than that, usual housekeeping aside... I want to welcome Laura to the show, and we're going to get into all everything Bumblebee toes because this is all new. This is all new territory to me. So, Laura, welcome. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm really glad that we got a chance to uh, connect, and I think it's. I've been really looking forward to this conversation for a while now. Me too. Me too. So why don't you, why don't we start at the beginning? Why don't you tell us your story? How, what were your earliest experiences with with animals or amphibians specifically, like? And how did you end up where you are today? So I have always um, had a, a great love for animals. And as a child, I, I was always <clears throat> collecting critters out of our yard. Um, I especially loved frogs and toads. Every day I would go around the yard. I would be flipping over rocks. I would pull out the concrete pavers under the drain pipes. And I would collect up all the toads in the yard. And we would have tea parties. <laughs> so I had this little China tea set um, and I would set a place for each toad and we would have our little party and then I would go put them back where I found them. And I, I did that like every day of the summer. Um, I even had names for all, all the different toads in the yard and I could tell them all apart. So my my love for, for frogs and toads goes way, way back. And my family definitely isn't surprised that I'm now breeding frogs and toads as an adult. It's great. Did you have the same toads at each tea party or did you have like alternating guests? Uh, I, I would always get all the same ones every day if I could find them when they were usually in the same spot. So That's great. You had a, you had a crowd of regulars. I, li- I like that. That's funny. So I know that you work with a couple of different species, but how did you get into bumblebee toads specifically? Like what, what made you decide to focus on them? So I mentioned that I've loved frogs and toads since I was small. I actually had um, like dart frog figurines that I used to play with. I had a big National Geographic poster on my wall that had a bunch of different species of brightly colored dart frogs. And at some point when I was an adult, I realized, hey, I can actually own some of these as a pet. And I just became intrigued with that idea. So I started doing some research and all the different different types that are out there and um, eventually I stumbled across bumblebee toads online and I thought, here are the beautiful bright colors of a dart frog in a toad and toads have always been my very favorite. So I knew that is the species I wanted. Yeah, they're pretty incredible. Actually, I've, I wanted to get some a while back, but they've only been sporadically available. Now your breeding group, how did you manage that? Because I off air, we kind of talked about it a little bit. But um, you want to tell the listeners how you managed to get, uh, I guess, was it a sex, was it a pair or a trio or how were you able to, to sex them out? So I did um, initially purchase a trio. Actually, it was through Josh's Frogs back when they did their Facebook auctions weekly. Um, and they had a trio of unsexed bumblebee toads up for auction. And I went, I won that and um, eventually, you know, discovered that what I had was <clears throat> two males and a female. Um, I never intended to breed them. These were just pets that I, I bought for myself. And I probably had them for um, about five years. And then unfortunately, two of them passed away uh, rather close together. And 
my my one remaining male uh, started hiding all the time, and I decided he needed a friend. So that um, caused me to kind of go out online and look for for more to buy. And at that point, you know, it had it had been five years, and I realized, wow, there's there's just none out there for sale anymore. I couldn't find any website that had any in stock. Um, and that whenever, um, whenever I decide I like want something and I can't get it, it just makes me that much more determined. So I joined some forums. I, I joined, uh, MeWe and I eventually did find somebody that had another adult for sale and it was an, it was a female. So I bought that toad and then I thought, well, you know, there obviously seems to be a, a lack of bumblebee toads out there available for people now. So I decided to, uh, try to breed them. How do you tell them apart, male and female? So the, the females get quite a bit larger than the males. They're very round looking. Um, and also the males have a lovely call. And uh, when you mist heavily, you'll, you'll hear it. They sound like little canaries. I love, their, I love calls. I mean, my, my dar frogs don't really have the prettiest of calls. In fact, some of them, like the epipedes, are really loud. But it must be nice to have a pleasant call in the background. Do they call like do they call all year or do they call at certain times or certain times a day? Um, they really only call if you keep them very humid, and I mostly I mostly don't. Um, only when I'm trying to breed them, but um, every once in a while I, w- I will hear it, and it is the prettiest call in the frog room for sure. Can you walk us through their care and their husbandry? Like uh, you know, just start at the beginning. Like let's just say that. Uh, say I wanted to get some, kind of walk me through the process in terms of what I would need to set them up and care for them properly and feed them and whatnot. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> sure. So yeah, I, I usually recommend people um, at the minimum have a 10 gallon tank or maybe an Exoterra 12 by 12 by 12. Um, they're not really climbers, so they, they would probably appreciate horizontal space rather than vertical. Um, <clears throat> you can you can keep them uh, in something as simple as like a 10 gallon with just cocoa fiber in the bottom, um, a water dish, a hide, but I really prefer to keep them in a, in a vivarium, um, you know, drainage layer, substrate, live plants, um, springtails, isopods. I, I really feel like that's probably the best setup for them. Uh, leaf litter. They, they do need a very shallow water dish because they're not great swimmers. Um, but I do see them occasionally soak. Um, misting every day. Uh, the, the humidity that they like is really closer to 50%. You see some articles out there that claim that they like higher humidity like dart frogs, but I've just not found that to be true. Um, in fact, if you keep them at a higher humidity, they'll start to climb and get up really close to the screen. Um, so usually misting once or twice a day is, is adequate. What about like ambient temperature? Is you just keep them at room temperature or? Yeah. So room temperature is just fine. They don't need any extra heat. Um, my house is usually between like 70 and 72 and it drops to 66 at night and that's just fine. Um, the area that they're from, um, in Paraguay is like a, a grassy, um, hilly area. Um, so not necessarily like what you would think of as like tropical, probably more temperate area. Are they seasonal breeders? I mean, I, I want to get into breeding a little bit more detail, but do they breed seasonally or is it just, I mean, I know with dart frogs, it's all over the place, but what's, what's their breeding cycle like? Yes. So they are explosive seasonal breeders laying hundreds of eggs at a time. Um, you know, during the rainy season, they, they lay their eggs in, in big puddles and ditches and stuff like that. So, um, it's kind of like dart frogs will just lay eggs. And people ask me, sometimes people that, that buy toads from me ask, you know, well, what if they lay eggs? Do I need to have a water dish in there or a petri dish in there for them to lay eggs in? And I said, I tell them, uh, they will never lay eggs for you. You have to work for it. Um, there are things you have to do to, to get them to, to breed. And a lot of that is mimicking the natural uh, seasons. You had some input from, from Nick Stacy, I think, right? Yeah, Nick has been a wealth of knowledge for me. Um, he breeds Adelopis and it's just very impressive. And I've I've used a lot of tips from him that's helped me a lot. Um, I also read the breeding article from Josh's Frogs. That's what got me started at first. Um, so I, I did take a lot of tips from that. 
Yeah, Nick's the man. I had Nick on the show a while back. I, I reached out to him recently. I want to have him back on again to talk about one of his salamander projects. But yeah, the Adelopis, the success that he had with Adelopis was incredible. I mean, it was it was unheard of. I mean, he 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 did it not once but twice. He did it with two species, and um, I didn't even know he was working with with bumblebee toads. Well, he I don't I don't think he currently is, but um, a lot of the the techniques that he's used with Adelopis have been really helpful to me with the bumblebee toads. Yeah. So walk us through the, walk us through the process. You, you, you have a group of, of, of toads from start to finish. What's, what's the breeding like? So the first thing I do is I start misting them less and I start feeding them less. Um, and then usually after several weeks of that, I, I put them through a, a period of brumation. Uh, it's their winter. So I have a reptile incubator that heats and cools and I will put them in a small temporary container with a very tiny little water dish. I usually use like a bottle cap and maybe a couple pieces of leaf litter. And I put them in this incubator, which um, I'll, I'll have it set to the room temperature. And then over the course of a day, I just slowly drop it down degree by degree until it's in the upper 50s. Um and then I still, um, I don't miss them while they're in there. I still feed them, but I feed them less. And I just make sure there's always water available in the little bottle cap. And I leave them in there usually for about two weeks. Um, after that, I, I kind of reverse the, the process and I, I bring it back up to room temp slowly. And then I move them back to the regular tank. And then I spend a couple weeks just feeding them normally, misting them normally. At that point, I will start ramping it up the misting and the feeding um, want to get them nice and fat and increase the humidity a lot in there. Um, after a couple of weeks, the the females will be very round. And at that point, they go into our rain chamber. So <clears throat> I've tried a couple different methods with the rain chamber. And um, since they lay so many eggs, I've just had to get a much larger rain chamber. Um, but I, it's, it's usually pretty simple. Um, I've got a couple inches of water in the bottom and some rocks, some live plants, and um, a sponge filter. I've also got another little filter that has like a spray bar. So it kind of sprays down almost like a little bit of rain. And um, after I put the adults in, I also play them some music. <laughs> Might sound funny, but it's actually just, it's just uh, an audio file of other bumblebee toads calling because I think it helps their competitive nature. So usually after about... Um, half a day or so I will find them in amplexus and then it's usually about another 24 hours before I'll see eggs is there any competition among the males for the females or like what's is there any kind of courtship behavior so the the first time that I I bred them the first couple times actually um I just had the one pair and that was part of the reason why I decided to play constant uh you know audio clips of other toads calling you know yeah it's, it's like it facilitates breeding by kind of getting them in in the mood so to speak i and i know what you're talking about i've done it with um with some of my frogs like my my bicolors will typically start they i've had difficulty with my bicolors as everyone knows but when my terabellas start calling my bicolors start going nuts too and then everything that's in the phylobates genus just starts yes. calling at the same time and it seems to get everybody worked up and and ready to start um to start reproducing that's exactly it. Yes. So, um, the last couple times I've bred them, I, I have more now. I, I have more than just my original pair. And, um, I do think that helps, but I, I still play the audio. Maybe I just like listening to it myself. <laughs> it's fun though. It feels like you're out there in the environment w witnessing it. What other caveats are there to bumblebee toad care? I would say that supplementation is is something that maybe people don't give enough consideration to. Um, I can't really say for sure because I don't keep any reptiles, but it seems like some people come into amphibians that keep reptiles and try to maybe apply the same type of supplementation regimen. But I think I think amphibians need um, a more varied supplement um, regimen than than other reptiles maybe, um, especially with bumblebee toads. Um, if you don't supplement with carotenoids, they will lose some of their pigmentation. In the wild, they're, they're known as red-bellied toads, and they, have, um, they actually have little bright red butts and feet. 
Um, but you'll notice if, if you don't supplement with carotenoids that that fades away. And I've been able to get it back to a deep orange with, with a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, supplements. So. Yeah. I started up in my carotenoid game. I, I actually, I had Matt Dugas on the show a while back. He had written that paper about carotenoids and, and pamilio in terms of the reproductive success. And you're right. It's amazing the amount of just how underrated carotenoids are as a supplement when it comes to amphibians, I guess, in, in general. And, um, I mean, have you experimented with and without carotenoids or you've always worked them into your, into your regimen? I never used them. <clears throat> I never used them until I started breeding. Um, I pretty much just used, I pretty much just used Rapashi Calcium Plus. And on, honestly, um, I believe one of my original toads, my original trio that I lost was due to vitamin A deficiency, which is also something I see a lot of people have trouble with because many of the all-in-one supplements out there that are marketed as this is everything your, you know, your toad needs, um, they just don't have the right form of vitamin A in them. So that's, that's definitely something that I include on my care sheets these days and make sure people know. Yeah, I, I believe it's the, um, a, a while back, a lot of the supplements, like you said, were geared towards reptiles. And since vitamin A is a fat-soluble vitamin and it can't be metabolized out fast enough, it runs into the possibility of becoming toxic. So they supplemented, beta, uh, they, excuse me, they substituted beta-carotene as a source of vitamin A, but amphibians can't, to our knowledge, metabolize beta-carotene into a form of vitamin A that they can use. Right. And I think a lot of people still don't know that. Um, but yeah, I actually, I have a little care sheet that I send out with every, every toad purchase and it has highlighted in yellow. Beta carotene is not an acceptable form of vitamin A just because it, it seems to happen a lot. I honestly think that's probably like the biggest killer of amphibians in captivity might be, um, improper supplementation. Yeah. I often wonder because it seems like we're using the same few supplements. I mean, I, I, I vary my supplementation a lot. I, I posted a picture on Instagram a while back of my fridge and I have like five bottles of Rapashi supplements in there, all different kinds. But I often wonder if we're taking the wrong approach with amphibians, especially the ones that are in the hobby, because we're giving them supplements that were designed for reptiles. And I mean, at least like when I was younger, you really, you only had, you had calcium. That was it. You basically had just crushed just crushed calcium. No, no D3, no, no, maybe you had the odd multivitamin, but do you think that like, what do you think people can do to become more aware of what amphibians need in terms of supplementation, as opposed to just putting them under that whole big reptile banner? You know, I think that maybe some people read one article and then just take that as gospel, but I have found there's also so much misinformation out there I think probably what people can do is read a lot of articles and then take what what's in like in common throughout most of them. Also, um, it's probably really important to talk to somebody that successfully keeps that animal rather than just take what you can find online. I know for me, um, a lot of the the things that I do and that I've learned have come directly from talking to other amphibian keepers. Yeah, even with the the tadpole rearing, right? Because um, I know Nick has a very Nick has a very, very simple yet very, very effective method for raising his toad tadpoles. How how are you raising yours? You kind of based yours, you said, on on what Nick's uh, Nick's recommendations were. Yeah. So my first couple uh, batches, I didn't really have a great survival rate, and I was trying to feed them tadpole food designed for frogs. And Nick basically told me, you know, toads are rasp feeders, or it's kind of like a pleco, you know. So what he does is he makes a powdered food and paint and gets it wet with a paintbrush and paints it onto a rock and puts the rock in the tank. And that has worked wonders for my uh, tadpole survival rate. They, they, they clean those rocks within a day. So I'm always painting rocks and putting new rocks in for them and they'll just be covering the rock, cleaning it. It's really, it's really fun to watch. And that, that has been a, a very wonderful tip from Nick. Do you have a preference for which type of rocks you use? <laughs> I know it sounds silly, but like, do you use smooth stones? Do you use rough stones? Like what, what kind of rocks do you use? You know, I have a bit of everything. I have rocks I've bought from the craft store and sanitized. I have rocks I found in my backyard and sanitized. 
Um, at one point, I just didn't have enough rocks, and I was just getting rocks anywhere I could. So, um, you know, it, I like the way the smooth the smooth ones look, but they're just as happy to go in all the little nooks and crannies on a rough rock. So, yeah, the Craft Star rocks are the best. It's like twenty bucks for a bag of like maybe like ten <laughs> really round. I mean, they're really right. pretty, but. I've seen very overpriced. <laughs> yeah, I've seen I've seen whole bags of them for like a fraction of that price. But and what about the the likes the life cycle of tadpoles? How long does it take them to go from egg to being out of the water? You know, the bumblebee toads just develop insanely fast. It blew me away the first time. Um, you know, they laid those eggs, and within just a few days, uh, they were tadpoles. And then three weeks from them becoming tadpoles. They were on the land. It was just nuts how fast it went. Do you have any tips for once they once they morph out? Like, um, do, you have, do you keep them in a grow out, or how do you keep the juveniles? Yeah, that's enough. So, <clears throat> if you get all your tadpoles to survive to land, the next big hurdle is getting them to survive this first this first couple of days on land. Um, and I've I've made a lot of improvements. Um, <clears throat> at first, I would as soon as I saw them come up out of the water. I would move them over to a grow out with um, substrate and some damp sphagnum and some plants. But I had a lot die on me. I had a lot that, you know, maybe took three steps and then they they just died. And I don't I wasn't really sure what why, but um, I started leaving them in the rain chamber. I would angle it up so one end of it was out of the water, and then I would let them stay in there, hang out, absorb their tails a bit more. Um, before I moved them. And I think that helps. Um, another thing I've kind of discovered is um, they don't really need that high humidity of the grow out for very long. In fact, I think I tend to lose more if I keep it humid in there. So adding a lot of ventilation to my grow outs has helped as well. That's interesting. What about diet? What are they, are they eating springtails or like tiny little nonagasters? What are they eating? Yeah, so they start out only able to eat springtails, so you have to have a lot of springtails. I, I, I thought I had enough springtails, and I, you can never have enough springtails. So for several weeks, that's what they're eating, and then they also they grow at rapidly different rates. Um, you would think they might all kind of grow at the same pace, but they don't. So some after a couple of weeks might be able to eat melanogasters like very easily, and it might be like a couple more months for some of them. Okay, so the springtails, now I want to pick your brain because everyone has different methods. How are you keeping your springtails? So I started out keeping them on the uh, tried and true old charcoal and water method, but it is very hard to feed from a culture like that. And once I tried the calcium clay method, that was it. I'm not going back to charcoal because it's very easy to to feed out of those containers. Um, you just turn it upside down and smack it pretty much, and it, that's that. Um, it, it's just, it's a much easier method. And I think the springtail, um, populations do so much better on clay. I've started using the clay myself and it just, I don't know if I'm getting, to me, it seems like I'm getting better results than the charcoal cultures, but you're right. It is, it's much easier to feed off because I have, um, I have some tadpoles that are coming out of the water probably within the next two weeks. So I'm just setting up a grow out bin for them. And I haven't had froglets in a long time, like over a year. So now I'm like panicking. I'm like, I got to get springtails in there. And I went to feed off of the charcoal culture. And it's such a pain because the charcoal like falls out. It's It ends up on the floor and it's, it's such a mess. Yeah, it is messy. Have you noticed any improvement in terms of, I guess, the successful development of the froglets using the springtails on clay as opposed to charcoal? Like, are you getting healthier froglets or to well, actually the toads, I should say healthier toadlets with the springtails on the calcium or does, was there any difference at all? You know, I can't say because by the time I had toadlets, I had pretty much switched to clay. Um, I kind of, I kind of saw the writing on the wall with how hard it was to feed out of charcoal. And I just invested in a lot of clay cultures when I decided to start breeding. Yeah. It's a nightmare. It's not really that user-friendly. <laughs> Do you have a preference for what you what you're feeding your springtails? So I make I make a powdered mix with rice flour and brewer's yeast, and I put carotenoids in it. And usually, um, if I have an expired bottle of like um, mul like the multivitamin with calcium or something like that, I'll dump it in there too. 
Um, I think I put, I think in my last batch, I put some powdered shiitake mushrooms. So I, I don't necessarily have um, an exact recipe, but it, it's it's pretty similar to a lot of the ones that are out there that contain rice and, and brewer's yeast. Yeah, I I use a, pre- a commercially prepared media or not media, rather, commercially prepared food, which I've had success with. It seems to help, but every so often I'll throw in something bizarre just to see if they like it. And the other day, I actually, it was an accident. I spilled some hermit crab food into one of the cultures. And by the next day, it was gone. And I, I mean, I spilled like a tablespoon worth of this stuff in there, and they just, they knocked it out like crazy. They they ate it. So I don't know if they just had a preference for it or what, but they ate that a lot faster than they would eat the, the uh, prepared diet. So... Well, I'm gonna have to try that. Yeah, I, again, I don't know if it's that the the healthiest thing for them or, or what, but they just they they hammered it. It was gone by like, I mean, this is a shoebox size culture. It was gone maybe about four hours. That's wow. yeah. I was I was like shocked because usually I'll dust the um the spring the the you know the the pre prepared uh, springtail food and it's you know it'll sit there for like for like the next day and it'll even grow fungus on it. Now this stuff they just hammered. Hermit crab food. I'm gonna try it. Now you keep are you keeping fruit flies as well? Are you breeding your own fruit flies? Yes, I do. Okay. Do you have any preferences in terms of like media type for fruit flies or do you have a species that you like to culture one or the other? So I I prefer Melanogaster. I do breed Hydei as well, but bumblebee toads are kind of slow and clumsy and I end up with more escaped fruit flies than anything. Um they seem to prefer the Melanogaster as well. I think it's just because they're easier to, for them to catch. But um, I used to make my own media, um, but I don't know that I necessarily noticed any better production from it. So I, I've switched to using um, Rapashi. Do you have any differences in production with uh, with the seasons? Because I know where, where I am in the Northeast, it's right now in January of 2022, it's like, Today was warm, but it's been like seven degrees out. And with the heat cranking, it just pulls. I, I lose cultures like crazy this time of year because it just pulls all the moisture out. So you're in you're in Missouri, you said, right? Yes. Does you do you do you have like seasonal variations in production with the weather? Or I mean, I don't. I'm not. I've never been to Missouri. I don't really know what the weather's like down there. Yeah, you know, I have noticed some, but one thing that I do that I think has really helped my cultures is I started storing them on top of my frog rack. So I have like a big metal rolling rack and I have, um, for my lighting, I use aquarium lighting. It's like those, those, um, those big led aquarium lights and I have them attached under each, um, under each shelf on the rack. So the very top one has an led mounted just under it. And it, it warms that top shelf just enough that I think it helps my flight production because I store them in bins up on top of that. And so that I feel like that helps keep them warm. But also one thing that I've noticed is that um, if I use the plastic lids that just have like holes poked in them in the winter, that seems to help keep them, um, it helps them to not dry out. And in the summer, I actually switch to the fabric vented lids. That's interesting. I have to try that. Yeah. So I was actually having a problem in the summer where the humidity was high enough that if I used the plastic lids with the holes, my cultures would gas themselves, basically. Um, It's like they weren't getting enough airflow. So switching to the fabric vented lids in the summer, I was having more of a problem, I guess, in the summer than the winter. But That's interesting. I always went with the fabric lids. They just worked better for me than the... um than the, whole, the lids with the holes poked in. That's interesting, though. I, I have to try that. Maybe if um, I, I'll, I'll order a uh, batch of the, uh, the the punctured lids. And I, I have to I have to try that because the the only my only problem is always the seasonal fluctuation. You know, it's like I lose it this time of year, and anything that I can do to up to production, um, yeah, I'm I'm gonna have to try that. Yeah, especially if your air tends to be real dry in the winter, it might help. Yeah, it's like. Two percent humidity here now. It's. I mean, I like it, Oof. but but the animals just just like you go downstairs and everything dries out during the day. So I have to like mist like crazy. Are you using a misting system with them, or, or are you hand misting? 
Uh, I do a combination of both. All of my my tanks with my adults are hooked up to a, a mist king, and then I hand mist all the babies. All my I have grow out bins with all my baby darts and my little baby bumblebee toads, and I hand mist those every day and check on them. Yeah, why don't you tell us about the other species you're working with in terms of it's it's you work with just dart frogs in addition to the bumblebees, or do you work with other species as well? So I, I recently, just this last year, got some paradise toads that I'm really excited to start working with. Um, they're still young, haven't bred them yet, but I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, those are the only other toads I have, although I do, I do plan to branch out with more toad species. Actually, toads are, they're just my favorite. I love them. I love the dart frogs, but the toads just, they're my favorites. Um, as far as dart frogs go, I really, um, I only have thumbnails. I just, they're so small and adorable. I was just instantly drawn to them because they're so tiny. I have a couple different types of Pamilio, and um, I have Rhinidomea imitators, which I just love. How do you have them set up? So I, I well, I started out doing 10-gallon conversions, but I, I eventually started building my own tanks. Um, I have the glass cut at a local glass shop, and they have sliding doors. Um most of my tanks I, I actually designed to fit onto my existing rack. So I think um, I think they are about 15 by 17 by 20 inches, I think. Um, and I, I do a pair per tank. So a couple tanks have trios, but most of them are just pairs. Did you ever use like any of the commercially available, like the front opening types? I mean, there's a couple of brands out there, but... I I do have a couple exoterras. Um, they're not fly proof. I guess that's my my biggest beef with them is the flies can squeeze right out those front cracks between the doors and the the sides. Oh, if it makes you feel any better, I have a couple of aquariums that have screen tops, and like the years ago, I used to be able to get the really fine screen tops that the Heidi I couldn't get out of, but all I could get was the um, kind of like the wider mesh, and I lose flies like crazy. It's it's. I have I have to get I mean you think that like the exoterras are bad this is so much worse I mean it's like oh, no. it's like prison break but I have I have a uh, I custom cut a piece of glass to sit over that because when I want to get ventilation I'll just kind of push the glass over like an inch or so just to uncover like maybe ten percent or even like five or two percent but I lose I lose the flies like crazy it's it's like a running gag in my house how many like rogue f- fruit flies I have everywhere. Yeah, it's it's the same here. Where uh, my husband and I are like joking the other day, we were <clears throat> just like a random fly, like at the other end of the house, like crawling around. I was the cats enjoy them though, so I guess it's not the end of the world. <laughs> and during the summer, we'll get wild flies that'll come in with like fruit or something like that, and I always get blamed for it. I'm like, wait a minute, like this isn't even the same species, and these guys can fly. These aren't mine, and I don't know. I still get. I still get the blame. Have for you it. ever had? <laughs> um, have you ever had wild flies infect one of your fruit fly cultures? Because I've had that happen. It's not fun. Yeah, it's. It, I've had. I've had that happen, and I've had it where I kept the high di too warm. I kept them on top of on not near, but on top of an aquarium light that was it was an old school light, and it gave off a fair amount of heat, and it got up to I'm guessing maybe probably the high eighties in there, and I opened the lid, and they all just took off in a million different directions and that really that really oh my gosh that really ruined my day because i had to i had to order a fresh new cultures but yeah i've i've had that happen and it's lousy when it does will they will the bumblebee toads will they take anything else like will they take pinheads or anything like that that's a little bit larger i've tried pinheads a couple times and they will but i i don't know um i personally hate crickets with a passion um and I just prefer the flies. And I think they prefer the flies. Maybe they're lazy. They probably take after me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fruit flies aren't exactly the most challenging prey items to, to catch. But <laughs> I don't know. Do you ever try anything like, like bean beetles or like rice flower beetles or anything like that? I haven't. I've thought about it. Um, I know some people feed aphids too, actually. And that, that is intriguing. If I could get my hands on some. Yeah, I've heard of people doing it, but I don't, I know aphids are kind of weird because of the way that they're regulated. I mean, at least, at least here in the U.S., I know that um, they're considered a pest, so I don't, I don't really know how people source them, but 
I've seen other insects, which like I've seen late. I don't know if lace wings are edible for frogs or whatnot, but I've seen people can buy la- lace wings, I believe, as aphid control. But I tried the rice flower beetles. I didn't have a lot of success. I just their their life cycle was kind of weird, and it wasn't a very it wasn't a big yield, and the frogs didn't seem to like them. So I'm always curious what other people are using to supplement, just like besides fruit flies and there just aren't that many other options that are at least at least in my opinion that i had a lot of success with yeah that's kind of what i've read and i know in the wild they eat a lot of termites but i'm just not willing to bring those into my house i don't i don't blame you (laughs) (laughs) although i'll I'll be honest with you i could totally see in like five or ten years people breeding some sort of termite as a feeder that doesn't do damage to i could totally see that happening I, i don't know why but that's like my projection for like the 2030s is something like that because it seems like people have interest in a lot of these species that are obligate termite feeders so i don't know maybe that's just me being a little bit uh a little bit overzealous in my thoughts but i don't know it's just one of those weird things i could see happening i i definitely think like a variety of feeders would be would would be beneficial but I, yeah i just don't know that there's really anything out there right now that's as easily that you can culture as easily as as fruit flies and like you said the bean beetles ended up being kind of a pain and i'm just not aware of anything else small other than you know springtails of course and maybe dwarf white isopods but it's kind of it's kind of difficult to make that like a staple in the diet yeah it's it's tricky now you started selling your frogs what it was this past year right you said you started off your your business yeah so i i started um i started selling in 2020 and then i i decided to start my business in in um at the beginning of 2021 yeah, tell us tell us about it how'd you um what made you decide to start and what are you up to now with the business well i <clears throat> I kind of saw a need out there, like it, there just weren't any bumblebee toads available. And I, I initially bred them kind of thinking, wow, there's just not that many bumblebee toads out there. And I know there's other people that probably want them, but also I wanted more. That was one of my big reasons for, for trying it the first time is I just had these two toads and I wanted a, a group of them. Um, and then when I started selling them, I realized just how many people out there were also looking for them and wanted them. Um, and I, I was selling so many that I, I decided, Hey, I, I might be able to make a business doing this. And I love doing this. It's, it's so enjoyable to, to me to spend time in the frog room every day and to work with them. And it, it really makes me happy that I can help provide pets to people. Um, there's so many people that are just so happy to get them and they tell me they've been looking for them forever and haven't been able to find any. I mean, there's definitely a need. I, uh, I I couldn't find anyone. You were one of the few people that I actually. I think you were the only person I f- I found who was working with the species. And it was, I like when people pick a certain species that's, I don't want to say overlooked, but is not easily worked with, and then crack that code. I I I just I love hearing like people like you having success with something like that because for the longest time it seems like a species will be in the hobby and it's just you can't get them. You can't get them for whatever reason, whether it's their, their diet, their reproductive cycle. And I just, I love hearing success stories like yours. You know, I managed to just kind of crack that code and be able to breed them successfully. And it's, you know, it's really nice too, that once you find somebody else in the hobby, like everybody just seems very eager to help each other and share their tips. Um, because everybody just wants everybody else to be successful. And so that's really great. I, I did eventually find somebody else breeding them, uh, his name's Stacy Baker. He's in Kansas, and he ha- he has an Instagram as well. I found him through Instagram, or maybe he found me. I don't remember, but um, we've shared some tips with each other and and exchanged toads even for genetic diversity. So it's it's really nice that I've at least found one other person that's actively working with them. Question for you: You're obviously like like we discussed earlier. You're sort of you're cycling them in captivity. Do you cycle all of them together or is that something that you might stagger to provide a more like readily available supply? Like, you know what I mean? Like rather than waiting like once a year, could you have two groups and like stagger them every six months? I mean, I'm just, just curious about. So I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but I've discovered that if I cycle them once, I can breed them twice, several months apart and they don't require cycling the second time. Really? Um, 
Yeah. I, I think I forgot to mention that earlier, but so like last year, I think I cycled them in early spring and then I bred them again late summer and I, and they did not need another, you know, brumation period that second time. Um, I do put all of them in there and I have also heard some reports of only putting the females through brumation. I haven't personally tried that. Um, but maybe the males don't need that and it's really what the females need to, to make fertile eggs. I'm not, not hundred percent sure, but I've heard that. That's interesting. Have you ever had any, I mean, I know that there's a lot of online debate in terms of whether or not brumation and estivation are safe. Have you ever had any incidents where you'd had a frog that didn't make it through brumation? I have not. Um, every time I breed them, it's something I worry about every step of the way. Um, I, that's why I try to make sure to, um, <clears throat> you know, decrease the temperature slowly over the course of a day. I don't want to shock them too much. Um, the other time I really, really worry is when they're in the rain chamber because they're so clumsy and they're just not good swimmers. And I have heard reports of the female being drowned by the male who is, you know, tightly latched on and pulling her down. So I always try to make sure that they have stuff that they can climb on and that the water level is not very high and they can, um, easily get out of it if they need to. It's wild. Toads are so crazy the way, they, I mean, all, all frogs and toads are, but I just watch toads go and then like they have that, those long two, those two long like strands of eggs just come like firing out of them. It's just so crazy. Yeah, it's nuts once they start laying the, the amount that they lay. I, I think each female lays at least 200 eggs. That's wild. Is there any cannibalism? I mean, I forgot to ask before, but like the tadpoles, do they exhibit any kind of cannibalism at all when they're still in the tadpole stage? No, I have never seen any of that. Um, in fact, I couldn't even get them to eat, you know, the regular frog uh, tadpole food. I I had the best luck with the, the, you know, painting the food on the rock method. So I really don't, I don't think they bother each other at all. Yeah, I guess they're so specialized then that they just have the right mouth parts for it. So I'm curious when you, all right, you, you obviously make a very significant effort to make sure that your customers have all the information and everything like that, that they need to take care of these bumblebee toads successfully. What is some advice that you would give to a beginner? And it doesn't necessarily have to be bumblebee toads. It could be bumblebee toads, dart frogs, whatever. What's some advice that you would give to someone who's looking to get started in the hobby? Um, I, I think I kind of touched on this earlier, but don't don't take any one article that you read as like the absolute truth. Because I know for me, when I started out, I read some things online that turned out not to be true. And, um, you know, I, I had some I had a couple of my toads die. And I I think that's directly related to me having not done enough research. Um, the vitamin A thing. You know, I <clears throat> I took that Rapashi Calcium Plus is this is all they need. This is the all in one. And um, had I maybe reached out to other people who were successfully keeping frogs and toads or read many more articles than just the couple that I read, I might have come across that information that they do need additional vitamin A supplementation and not lost that toad. So I guess my 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 biggest piece of advice is to just do a ton of research and absolutely reach out to other people that are keeping the species you're interested in and pick their brain. Um, definitely talking to people that keep that keep toads and breed them successfully has been um just i think my biggest asset in this yeah i think that we have to co constantly understand that this is going to be an evolutionary thing you know what i mean we're, we're never going to have it right at one point you know I mean, there's always going to be something new to learn and we're going to have to kind of grow our understanding of the hobby as you know as research shows up you know, new research comes out and new papers are published and new articles come out because I just, I hate to say that, I mean, I could never say like, all right, you know, I, I know everything about a certain species. You know, like, what do I know? You know what I mean? There's always something new coming out that's going to completely obliterate what we thought was true a couple of years ago. Yeah. And another thing people probably don't think of all the time is, um, you know, what if my toad gets sick? You know, people, <clears throat> I don't think people tend to take they're reptiles and amphibians to vets like they would a cat or a dog, but I have taken my toads to the vet and sometimes they just need that. I, um, when I, when I first lost my two bumblebee toads from my trio, I took the third one into the vet and, uh, he told me, <laughs> he actually told me, uh, my toads were obese. Um, and I was feeding them too much and I just didn't realize you could feed a toad too much. Um, 
but he he did mention that it's really hard on their organs when they're so overweight, um, and it can you know could cause early organ failure. I had another a different species of toad that I took in one time with a he had a prolapsed rectum, and this vet actually did surgery and put it back, and that toad is fine. But I don't know that that people always think to themselves that they can even take a toad to the vet. But there are exotic vets out there who will who will see frogs and toads. Is this someone that's local that you have a good relationship with, or did you have to really look around to find the right person? So there's actually only two vets in my area that will see animals like other than cats and dogs. And this this particular vet, my husband had taken a hedgehog to and and recommended him to me. And he had not ever done surgery on a toad, but he is a really great vet who does lots of research when needed. And um, I've just had a really good experience with him. That's good. I know a lot of people run into some difficulty because it's hard enough for many people to find an exotics vet who will see the species that you take care of. And it's even harder sometimes to get an appointment because a lot of these vets also have regular small animal practices as well. And I know a lot of people get frustrated because they call to make an appointment for a sick animal and they can't get an appointment for a week, 10 days or whatever. I know it could be kind of a deterrent to people, but do you think that there's a value on wellness checks, meaning getting a good baseline in terms of where your animals are while they're healthy as opposed to waiting until there's a problem? Yeah, I think that would actually, that probably would be a really good idea. I haven't personally done that, but, um, you know, in the, in the first situation, the vet pointed out something that I never would have even considered. You know, he actually, he pulled a book off his shelf and flipped it. (laughs) It was a, it was a book specifically on dart frogs. And he, he flipped to a section that showed like a weight range with pictures of frogs all the way from like emaciated to obese and (laughs) compared my toad to, to this graph, but it's not something I would have ever thought of. And, you know, maybe if I had taken my toads in for a wellness check, um, before that, he could have pointed out that, you know, my supplementation was incorrect. That's why. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. You just you get in front of the right person and it can make such a difference. So we're we're kind of winding down here at the end, but um I just wanted you to give everyone an opportunity to if someone wanted to find you, uh, you know, online or on Instagram and reach out to you, like what's the process they would go through in terms of contacting you to get some frogs or to get some toadlets? So I mainly operate my business out of, um, Instagram and it's at Laura's little zoo. So I would encourage people to just send me a direct message and I'm happy to answer any questions that they might have. Um, I, I want people to ask me questions because I, I definitely want people to, to have proper care for their animals. So I'm always happy to to answer any questions that people send my way. Amazing. I, I just, I, I love finding out about new species and I, I just, I want to thank you for taking the time to discuss bumblebee toads. And I mean, we, all right, just so everyone knows, we tried to de- figure out the best way to pronounce a scientific name because none of us have ever actually heard it out loud. So you, you want to give it a try and I'll give it a try? Sure. Yeah. So I've only, <laughs> I've only read it, but I have been saying in my head, Melanophryniscus clappenbacki? No idea if that's right. Okay, because I'm looking at a list of... I see the genus name, and I see... I see two species. I see... And I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna to agree with you. I think it's melano... Oh, God. I'm, this is so embarrassing. Melanophryniscus, and I have Steltzneri, and I have clappenbacki. Those are the two, the two names. Although I'm not quite sure as the taxonomy. I mean, do you know? Do you know about the taxonomy here? The differences. <clears throat> so I think, and I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but from what I've read, when they were originally imported, they were going with Stelzneri, and they actually found it to be Clappenbachy. Um, so that's kind of what I'm sticking with, um, just based on what I've read online. Yeah, taxonomy is crazy. That could and that could all change again in like six months or a year. Taxonomy, true. Taxonomy is true. so. It's <laughs> like if you ever have a conversation with a taxonomist, it's just it's amazing how like what what a racket it is. How like how much things change, and you know the the slightest little new discovery can make a a, a tremendous amount of difference. I mean, even with species 
and Jenner are being revised like twice within the same year. Yeah, I I just read about um, a Renitomea that that was reclassified just the other day. So. Oh really? What was it? What was it? What was it reclassified to? I think it was reclassified to Summer Sea. Some I think that's how you pronounce that. Summer Sea. I have Summer Sea, Summer Sigh. <laughs> it varies. I I have. It's interesting when you think about it because I don't know anybody who speaks ancient Greek. And I, I mean, I know people who who speak Latin, but it's it's so hard to pronounce something that that no one has really ever said out loud and doesn't really technically doesn't exist outside of a scientific textbook. So I don't know. I it's just I I, I always get so embarrassed when I pronounce something out loud and I'll have someone say, you know, it's actually pronounced this way, and I'm like, okay, that's that's cool. <laughs> I have no choice but to believe you. But all right, so uh. Any, anything else you want to end on? Any any uh, last words or anything else that we didn't get to cover that you wanted to uh, touch on before we wrap up? I guess I just want to say to anybody out there that's thinking about attempting to to breed, just go for it. I mean, a lot of this for any of us, I feel like, is trial and error. And the more people we have out there, you know, breeding different species, the more we're going to be able to to have here in the states. And I know that. Um, you know, there's a, there's not a lot of things that are being imported anymore from certain areas. So um, I guess don't be hesitant to try it and reach out to somebody that's done it and, and pick their brain. Amazing. Interesting stuff. I, lo- I love episodes like this. Well, Laura, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this episode. I, I learned a lot about a species that I've really had never any experience. I, I honestly never thought I'd see them out for sale again. So I want to thank you for sharing your insights and your input in terms of the bumblebee toads. And I want to thank all of you out there for listening. And, uh, you know, I've been trying to vary the content up. I know that I kind of focus on a lot on dart frogs, but that's kind of just what's in my comfort zone, so to speak. But I love doing episodes like this, and I hope you guys too. And if you guys are listening out there and you have some input, you have a species that you'd like to maybe learn more about, or you have some research that you might want me to look into, by all means, shoot me an email. I love getting feedback, and it's feedback like that that helps me get in touch with with awesome people like, uh, like Laura. So... Again, I want to thank everyone. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Catch up with you again soon.